Hey folks, Mark Gagger Stewart here with DDTV, and uh, we're going to sit down with my buddy here, Matt Rossbang. Matt, thanks Mark. for uh, coming out. Well, I guess we came out here to the, <laughs> the world-famous Sam Phillips Recording Service. Yes, sir. So, uh, yeah, I guess I guess uh, first time in you met, you were at Sun Studio. Yeah. Uh, you started as a tour guide, right, and eventually got into engineering, or how, how, what was the progression there? Well, I... Um I got to record there when I was 14. I'd, I had a, um, a two-hour gift certificate that my folks bought for me and a buddy, and we were an awful band. Uh, he played a djembe drum. That's how bad it was. But uh, we recorded there with James Lott, who we both know very well, and, and I just thought James, James was just a, an amazing person and amazing kind of host to two kids that had no business yeah. recording in his studio. <laughs> and uh, I watched him record and, and engineer and produce us, and... It just, I fell in love with it, watching him, you know, move the faders and add reverb and make it kind of sound good. Um, and I kind of was bugging him the whole night about it, and he, he told me to come back and intern. And um, I came back when I was 16 when I could drive, and the owner who's, the owner of Sun is actually my cousin, and he asked if I would be a tour guide there. So I became, I came back at 16 and started being a tour guide, and I was, I was the assistant in the studio. And I worked my way up from assistant to second engineer to the main engineer, and then from tour guide to operations manager over the course of, a, uh, I, was about, I was there at Sun about 11 years or so. Okay, so this transition happened from <coughs> when you were like 14 to 24? Yeah, puberty. So you were young, man. I, yeah, I grew up there. I really did grow up at Sun, which is kind of a, a funny thing, but. That's pretty awesome. So you got to meet a whole lot of those old school cats too, right? Yeah. Like, like Like Scotty Moore, Elvis's first guitar player. That, that was one of my favorite parts was, was and you, you and I had a mutual friend, Roland Janes, and, and Scotty Moore and Jan Van Eaton, all the, all the Sun guys would come in and, and um, impart this knowledge on you. You know, that it's like a whole library, a walking library. And, uh, and um, you know, just, that's the, they're all the guys that influenced me. I, I think I grew up in a time when music is more uh, digital and more processed and more computerized, and it's harder to, to, uh, look up to some of that stuff because it's so manipulated. Yeah. Where if you look at, you watch an old video of, uh, you know, Mississippi John Hurd or Scotty Moore and watch them, they didn't, you know, fake that thumb picking thing. Yeah, they, yeah. They came up with it. So, um, it was, to meet them in the flesh is pretty amazing. So, with what you do now, do you think of those guys often or is there <coughs> particular things that you kind of learn from them as an as engineer? Yeah, th th there's a voice in your head, I think, sometimes from, from, um, Scotty and Roland and uh, Cowboy Jack and those guys to you know keep it simple and Cowboy Jack used to always say if you're not having fun we're not doing our jobs yeah and um, and I got to work with him in the studio a couple of times and he made that really clear so I think that a lot of that when you get in the studio is just constant reminders of the people before you especially at Sun being in one little room with mi with limitations and minimal equipment you know not to overthink things was kind of would dra uh, drilled in your head a lot yeah. so. Yeah, so yeah, that is a pretty amazing room. So I guess as you know, or TV land, so uh, uh, the Sun tenure lasted from 1950 to 1960. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Sam left the facility because uh, he was outgrowing it, and he built him a state-of-the-art place right here. We're Which at we're in. Uh, the Sam Phillips Recording Yeah, service. we're in Studio A here. So this was considered uh, state-of-the-art at the time, right? Rivaled anything in Nashville? Yeah, I think uh, Sam, you know, this is one of the first purpose-built studios, and he designed the whole building himself. It took him three years. He spent uh, $800,000, which today would be about $7 million, designing every inch of the building. I mean, the bathroom sounds good. The lobby yeah. sounds good. The hallway sounds good. All the rooms are kind of meant for music. And um, especially in 1960, when things, there wasn't even a lot of, like, recording made 
specific equipment, everything here was custom made. And the doors, he designed these doors so they would open and close so you could change the acoustics right, of the yeah. room depending on how you wanted to. So I think it's still kind of ahead of its time because it's uh, it's just amazing what you can do in here and the focus of of what happens when people are in a room that can all see each other and look at each other and play off each other. And that's what this room is great about. So uh, just kind of give them in a nutshell, I guess, everybody who's recorded here and everything that's happened. Um, Sam officially opened in 1960. The first thing they did was Charlie Rich Lonely Weekends. They cut the basic track at Sun, and by this time they had three-track recordings, so they brought the tape over here. That was done here. here. I didn't know that. Okay. They cut the basic track at Sun, and then they brought the tape over, and they added the, the background singers, and they also had... People think it's tape uh, hand claps, but it's actually tape flanges they were smacking together. Wow. And they had the chamber. It hits echo chamber, so that's all that reverb. But Jerry Lee Lewis cut a bunch of great stuff. Charlie Rich. Wooly Bully was cut in this room. Isn't there a Jerry Lee bullet hole somewhere? Uh, Jerry McGill, yeah, shot his gun off over there. They were cutting a song called Tiny Honeys and Hogs. Um, the Yardbirds cut Train Kept a Rolling and a bunch of great oh, wow. cuts I didn't know in that. here. Um, uh, Phil, uh, Robert Plant did a record here in the 80s uh, with Phil Collins. Um, John Prine did Pink Cadillac in this room. Um, lately, I did Margo Price's second album, All American Made, in this room, and, um, and a bunch of other great artists. So, I was, yeah, was going to bring my next question. So, uh, so when you left Sun, uh, you left Sun for what was your what your first major session, right? Was that the Jason Isbell record? Yeah, I had been at Sun for, like I said, about 11 years, and I loved it there. And, and as, as people know it's it's kind of like um, a living museum and so the hard part for me is the music to me comes first and to record comes first and so that's kind of regulated to the nighttime and for for certain artists you want to be able to be in there for a month or you yeah. want to live in the space and it's hard to do at sun and I've been there for a while and I didn't want to be just known as the sun guy I kind of wanted to and I wanted to push myself I felt like when you work in one room every single day with the same microphone the same stuff yeah you can do really great work but I how am I in another room? And I want to, you know, get experience and keep pushing myself. So um, I recorded Margot's first album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter at Sun, and it did really well. And um, a, a rather big producer, Dave Cobb, and I, I loved a lot of his records, called me while I was at Sun and asked me to do a session at Fame, which is, you know, three hours south. And um, I did, I went down there, it was an Anderson East artist, and we did it for Spotify. And while we are doing that session, he said, man, I'm, I love the stuff you've been doing at Sun, and, and this sounds great. Do you want to do the Jason Isbell record with me? And I love Southeastern, the record before that. It's incredible. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I didn't, you know, how many times people call in the business and yeah. nothing ever happens. But I, I was jazzed the whole way home. I thought about it, and, and they called. And, you know, it, it was a month of work in Nashville, and I was also the manager at Sun and, and the Owners, owners at Sun didn't really want me to leave uh, to go do to be gone for a month, e even though it, it would benefit the studio in a way too. And I knew I'd just regret it if I never did that record. And I'd been thinking about going independent all this yeah. time. So there's multiple things, but yeah, I quit basically to do one record, uh, and it, that was something more than free by Jason Isbell, and it went number one, and uh, we and we w we won Grammys for it, and it kind of that record changed my life. And the Margot record came out about the same time, so it really kind of, I think. Um, help establish me some more calls for other gigs yeah. outside of the sun kind of the um, roots like traditional root stuff thing. So, so so what was uh, Dave Cobb like as a producer? Was he D more of the nurturing type or a ball buster? Or Dave's, like? uh, Dave's amazing. Uh, Dave and I are very similar and, and Dave's a, a fan of uh, the same stuff that we are in the history and stuff like he likes to record all live in a room and very organic and come up with on the spot very little pre-production kind of 
by the seat of your pants, which is how you know Memphis has always kind yeah. of done it in in a lot of spaces. And so, it, I think that's why we work so well together because uh, we're both don't we don't um, use the computer as a crutch. We kind of get the performance and and uh, get it live, and then we uh, just mix it on the spot and stuff. So it was a great kind of um, I learned a lot from Dave as far as I think a lot of times when you're in the studio it's common to go like we, we mix for the we track for these certain amount of days then we start mixing and like once you're in mix mode you know you don't go back to overdubbing or something yeah, you know what i mean yeah. like your you you got tunnel vision and we are on jason something more than free we had cut the song steel trap town and it was a actually a big band like kind of like a petty thing and um over the course of the month we you know we tracked it we kind of overdubbed it, we put it aside and then we came time to mix the record uh, we went out to dinner one night, and um, you know, I'm, my head's just in mix mode about what to do next. And Tom, uh, Dave and Jason said, "You know, I'm not really feeling uh, Steel Trap Town now. After we've cut all these other songs, it feels kind of like uh, standing out a little too much." And we got back, and Dave said, "Why don't you just go play it acoustic real quick?" So I had to like quickly tear down the mix session. I threw up two microphones real quick, and we cut Steel Trap Town in one take, and that was what's on the record. I think we Steel added tank. like a shaker. And that's one of everyone's favorite songs, but you know that kind of reinforced in my head that nothing's too precious. There's n at no point can you not go back and it doesn't something feel. Right. And I think that's what's great about Dave is he follows his gut, and it doesn't matter if it's the last day and the last hour. If it doesn't feel right, let's go back and try it real quick, acoustic, and see yeah, if we yeah. beat it. So that was a great lesson learned. But I, I've done probably 30 records or so now with Dave, and uh, he, he's just a um, I've learned a lot from it. It's amazing to to get to work with some of the artists with him. And so when you were when you were working on that record, was it this moment? Like, did you know it was going to be this big record? Did you just have a feeling? Was there just something in the air? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't. You know, you never. I never th think about stuff while you're working. You just like. I yeah. mean, he'll Jason will make you cry. Like he he does. Um, you know, flagship the. That flagship song he did with him and Amanda in the room side by side, and then on this last record, we were if we were vampires. I mean, yeah. hitting record and listening to that while they're tracking it, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is gonna make a million dollars. I'm just kind of tearing up from the the, yeah, the words, yeah, and bet. actually, you kind of forget you're supposed to be recording. And yeah, yeah. Kinda <laughs> close your eyes, but it's just uh, it's amazing to be uh, moments like that in the room and, and and hear that stuff. It's pretty awesome. So let's uh. uh Tell us about your Grammy. So you have a Grammy. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty wild. Um, the something more than free. I'm sure, one. it's kind of surreal, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, the honestly, the the uh, something more than free was nominated, and I didn't go to the Grammys. I'd already booked. The, you know, the Grammys happen in February. You don't think about. You don't plan on your calendar like, oh, I might be going. To the Grammys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always book February. And don't think about it. And uh, I was actually working on another project here, and I. Um, they do the daytime Grammy thing, and so we took a dinner break, went to Faux Ben, great spot, mm -hmm. and uh, we, wa we watched the live stream on the thing, and all my friends that were at the thing started texting, oh shit, Jason won Best Americana Song, which I get a, 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 a plaque for, but then it won album, and we won and got a Grammy for that, and then it kind of happened again this year with the new ja Nash Jason record. You know, you don't think it's going to happen again, but I booked this, I was here in Memphis working on I think Mar Margot record and um, Boo actually Boo Mitchell and uh, John Horniak texted me and said you just want another one for the Nashville Sound so um, so you actually have a shiny little Grammy I have I'll have two yeah they they take a they they hand make each one and um, so it takes a couple months to get it but uh, so where's this Grammy live uh, right now it's at the house you know it kind of 
it's the most amazing thing in the world, but it kind of freaks me out, you know, like just to look at it and stuff. So I kind of just have it on the bookshelf next to all the vinyl. But uh, do you um, like polish it often? No, I don't. You know, I don't ever touch it. But then you, you know, you, you people come over and they grab it, and then you got fingerprints all over it. And any kind of <laughs> special, always. any kind of special oil you use to, to clean a Grammy? I need a, I need a I'm chicken sure you grease. Use Windex that thing. You got it's got to be I something special. I bet you could. I bet you could. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, listen. It's a, it's amazing, but you know. Because of that Grammy, um, Boo Mitchell won for two that, that year for Uptown Funk, and uh, we can't. We when he got back, Pat Kertigrate in, in the city of Memphis put a little party on for us, and they gave us a key to the city. And to me, like as you know, Memphis is. If I didn't grow up in Memphis, I don't know if I'd even be, do, be doing music. And um, the, the the amount of people that came, uh, my heroes that came out of this town and are still in this town, it's to to be. Uh, giving a key to that to Memphis is yeah. just like to me that That's was like awesome. uh, yeah. you know the Grammy thing is voted on by your peers and it, that was amazing and I was a small part of of that you know J Jason could have recorded that album on his phone and I think it would be yeah, just as yeah. powerful but it was great but to have the uh, city that I am kind of obsessed with do it was was just as amazing too. That's awesome. So uh, uh, how do you see yourself as a producer compared to those that you've worked for? I'm a real asshole. Oh, you're a ball buster. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, you know, the thing about production, I think, is that there's no, just like making a record, there's no rules and there's no tricks that you can do every single time. And you've made tons of amazing records, and you know that every time it's different. Yeah. And and the song is different. So there, are, there are artists that I've pushed really hard to do something, and there's artists that you don't need to put. Like Margot Price has. She knows who she is, and she she knows her sound, and what comes out of her is just incredible. And you kind of capture that, and you are a, kind of a a uh, um, a positive voice. You know, hey, that's great, do it again, or yeah. we're almost there. And you're kind of a, a cheerleader. Um, and then there's some of her songs where you go, what if we flip this and we have to do it halftime? Or, but then there's other artists that you really kind of push into um, a zone that maybe they're not too comfortable with something that they're not. And so it, I, I feel like you have to change it all the time depending on the artist. And th I don't think there's one set way of making a record. Yeah. I think that's when you get stuck. And I don't ever want to make the same record twice or the same sounding record twice. So I always push myself too as f uh, in different ways of different hiring different session guys or not using certain microphones again. Or So I'm always trying to do something different that speaks to whatever the artist okay. wants. All right, let me fanboy out just for a second, okay? Sure. John Prime. Yes. You know, John Prine's like my all-time yeah, favorite. Yeah. Go. You gave me the full scoop, um, man. It it was, uh, that was surreal for me, too, because um, my dad, I grew up with my dad. My dad really played me a lot of amazing, and my mom, too, a lot of amazing music growing up. And John Prine was a big part of our house. Yeah. And uh, so to, to finally meet him was pretty incredible. And um, he had been actually, uh, Margo and some, uh, some of our mutual friends have been telling him about me, so... Uh, it was weird because he was excited to meet me, which kind of threw me off for a spin. But yeah. um, we we made a record at RCA with Dave Cobb, and it's the first record John's made in 13 years. And John is one of those guys that he's got life figured out. You know, he know he eats at a certain restaurant every day for pork chops, or he wants meatloaf. Like he has meatloaf every day on Thursday, so he goes to Arnold's. He goes to a Germantown Cafe for pork chops on Mondays. So he has uh, his has this amazing schedule worked out. And he loves old Cadillacs. So we drove an old Cadillac, a different one every day to the studio. 
and uh, we had KFC for dinner a couple times. This year. I mean, awesome. he has life figured out, and he he brings in these songs and that you know, as you know, like you'll cry and you'll laugh all in two verses, and they make him laugh and cry too. Like we we cut and play back, and he's laughing at his own lines and crying at his own lines, and uh, it That's was awesome. just amazing. And I got to pick his brain because um, he cut Pink Cadillac in the studio, and it really changed his life meeting Sam and Jerry and Knox and yeah. being here with Billy Lee Riley and I brought a copy of Pink Cadillac up for him and we laughed about it and he came down about two weeks or maybe about a month ago he came back down to Memphis to see this place again and he teared up at uh, seeing how it unchanged it is and and Jeff Powell uh, cut him a Saigon and Pink Cadillac I mean a Saigon and How Lucky on a Disc so you got to watch that. And we listened to the new record in my the little mixer in my half, and went out to dinner, and it was just a, a surreal experience. But he 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 changed my life. I mean, in so many ways, the the record is is just devastating, and and uh, I get a voicemail from him, and it just you know my heart swells up. He's just the most amazing man that you can learn so many life lessons from. Yeah, and he, wow. he just is so funny and so kind, and his family is just he has this big family. They all love each other, and. They all came to the studio and just things, you, rare things you don't see in the music business yeah. a lot, you know, so. That's awesome. John Prime, man. Yeah, he's so, a, uh, What else do you have in the pipeline? Like, what are you working on now? Um, I'm really, ex really excited about um, a lot of things. Uh, there's a, a Nikki Bloom album we did in here yep. that's coming out that's just, it's just incredible. It's full of sad songs, it, but it's uh, it's like a Joni Mitchell blue. It's a it's a time capsule of a moment that I think is, is incredible and um there's a great artist, Charlie Crockett. We just finished Lucero, which yeah. is going to be really exciting. It's their 20th year anniversary, and this. So, what direction are they taking? Um, I hear it's going to be a little bit different. It is, you know. I um and I didn't. I don't think I influenced them too much, but really, we put them in a room. We put them in this room all together, and they wrote in the studio together. So it's it's, I think it's, it's similar to like a Tennessee. They're one of their earlier albums in that regard, but. It's 20 years of them together, so it's you know, the the a lot of the songs are relating to being a father, and uh, because Ben's now a dad, yeah. you know, and um, uh, it's really I think people are really going to dig it. It it, it um I'm a, I've always been a Lucero fan, and and uh, I just love it. It's it's incredible. Um, there's a, a Paul Thorne gospel record that we did here that's out with the Blind Boys of Alabama. That's really cool. Um, I've got um. Patrick Sweeney, we did an amazing record coming out here soon, and uh, um, a lot of cool unreleased Elvis stuff I've been working on. So. Oh wow! So you did a you did an Elvis project uh, a few years ago, didn't you? Yeah, I've done a couple now. Uh, Sony Legacy had me mix. Uh, Elvis got tired of recording in Nashville, and he they brought a remote truck down. And he he cut a bunch of hits in the jungle room. Yeah. And so they, it was like the 50th or 60th anniversary of that. So they released the masters, and then I I mixed all the outtakes and. And some of the original take of uh, the master takes two, and so this two is all my mixes of it. So was there lots of studio talk? You Amazing. That's one of my, the best parts is you can hear. I think a lot of people think of Elvis in the '70s because this is '74, '70, '76, somewhere around there. Uh, I think a lot of people at that time think Elvis was just kind of pilled up and overweight and and kind of phoning it in. And when you listen to these takes, he is directing the band, he's directing the producer, he's telling the engineer, he's like to slow it down this yeah, isn't yeah. the right mood and he's in fully in charge of the session and I think it's 
and he's singing his butt off. I mean, it just uh, it really reinforced to me how much music meant to him, and it, it, throughout his whole life, he never got over it. You know, that's awesome. Uh, so it, it was really cool to and he hear James Burton, you know, and David Briggs and Ronnie Tut. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I heard that man. It sounded great. It was it, it was pretty freaky to be. At here and have it run through the echo chamber and so you hear Elvis through the whole building kind of. It's like <laughs> the voice of God. And those guys, <laughs> they brought down the TCB band. So while I'm mixing, I had Burton, Ronnie Tut, um, Norbert Putnam, David Briggs were all over my shoulder. So Ronnie Tut was, was the drummer, right? Ronnie Tut was okay. the drummer and then uh, he had Glenn Harden and David Briggs, but Glenn couldn't make it down for this session. And then James Burton on guitar, obviously, and Norbert Putnam did some bass. Jerry Schiff did most of the bass, but Norbert Putman did some. So yeah, I think Norbert Putman. Um, uh, he did one of my favorite records, uh, the very first Tony Joe White record, yeah. Black and White. Yeah, I don't know if he produced it. I know he played bass on it. Um, the that's, that's a gem. The Billy Swan produced a lot of the early Tony Joe and Monument. Yeah, I he think, produced it. Yep. I think okay. uh, Norbert played bass on it and was a big part of the. Yeah, yeah, love that record. Yeah, there's obviously been tons of changes in the music business since me and you started out. Yeah, and uh, kind of where do you see this going, and how 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 would a say like a, a singer-songwriter today sort of survive in this world of downloads and technology and, you know, and like where do you think all this is going? You know, it's um, it's it's kind of, it, as it's changing, it's kind of reverting to, as you know, like when we started, it, tape was going away, and it was all digital, and people were doing a lot of home recordings. Now it's going back to people want to go to studios again and record a tape, and they want to, you know, it's it's worth it to spend extra money and do it because I think you realize you can't do everything at home and you need someone to push you, you need a producer, you need an engineer, and you need a band, you need to feed off people. That's the whole point of music is to feed off people. And I think what's about in terms of sales-wise and stuff now is, you know, as CDs are dying and we're going into streaming, vinyl's also coming back. So we're kind yeah. of getting a little bit of both worlds now merging. And honestly, I love CDs and I think vinyl's incredible. I think vinyl's... While anyone can put their song up on YouTube, you have to be somewhat legitimate or somewhat really trying to get your stuff on vinyl because of the cost and, yeah, and yeah. other reasons. And um, so I think it's great that vinyl's still in, that physical product is still out there. And uh, it is pretty incredible that you can record a song right now and you can put it up on the internet and anyone in the world can hear it. I mean, you know, whether that saturates the market or not, that's pretty incredible that you can reach somebody. In a way, with that part of it, it's almost like it was in the beginning, back of the Sundays, yeah. when, when, when you would literally record a single and then Sam could get it on the radio just the next day, pretty much. Yeah, you know and, see, what I mean? and, and test it out. And exactly, and, and it's kind of come back to that. It, I see a lot of people just doing singles and putting it out there yeah, in the world. Yeah, the you know? singles have come back, and, and, and um, you know, I... I'm a glass half full guy, but I just think it's an amazing time to make music. And I think we're also in this this great trend. You know, they're calling it Americana, but there's a a really kind of organic movement pushing now, and it's getting uh, more recognition and well known. And and I think that it, that's pretty incredible that you know, in a time where we could be doing everything with a computer and we could do everything from you know, you don't you, your drummer could be in Georgia, your bass player can be in California, and you could be in Indiana. You can all make a record over the internet that we're still all flying to places and making albums and yeah. stuff. And touring's always been hard, and it always will be hard. But um, you know, there are there are problems with you know not making money through streams, not enough money through streams, and our songwriters aren't getting paid properly. And you know, I think that's 
a lot of people complain about why music isn't as great as it was back in the day, but back in the day they had people like Dan Penn and you had Roy Cuff and A. Cuff and Rose who would just write all day and they yeah. were getting paid to write all day because they had great publishing deals and their cuts were getting cut. But nowadays songwriters don't make enough to just be able to, it's very rare, Nashville's a, a, one of the few spots where there are people that just write, you know, like writers get together and write all yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, our greatest writers didn't necessarily have their own music. They just, Lieber and Stoller, they wrote for other people. Yeah. And uh, it's hard for them to make that living now doing that. So if there's, I think, a way to fix that, we would definitely see better music yeah. getting out there too. But I think it's a it's an amazing time to make records. That's awesome. I love the, the glass half full uh, mentality. Yeah. A lot of times I'll ask that question of folks and it's, it's just the opposite response, you know, so. I think you gotta, you know, I, I, I try and work really hard. I try and work every, I work every day. I try and book myself. Days off are the hardest for me. You know, I'd rather work 45 days in a row, yeah. 18 hours a day than have three days off and not <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the hardest for me. And I, I know there's people out there that work harder than me. And I think in the music industry, you, uh, a lot of negativity, um, you, you can look at not, you got to try something different or keep yeah. pushing yourself or, you know, like I, I left a, um, um, I left a salary job at Sun Studio that, that I'd been for 11 years for one album and not being, you know, that would pay me for that four month or that for that month, but then I had nothing else after that. So and I was used to a steady paycheck. And as you, you know, as a, a, chance. Wow. As, as a musician, a steady paycheck, it's uh, pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it turned out to be the best thing I ever did. And um, you got to be willing to just jump and, and, uh, and, Keep trying hard, cause you and as you know, you don't know what's around the corner. There could be a sink around the corner that changes your life. You get one song on a movie, yeah, yeah, and it changes everything. So you got to keep writing and keep pushing, and and um, and I think you got to stay positive because uh, that's that's how things happen. I love it. That's awesome. So you mentioned Nashville. So I'm sure the the, the Nashville vacuum is kind of sucking you in, young Jedi. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, do you ever? See yourself leaving Memphis? Like, no. Or what do you see yourself ten or twenty years from now? I don't. Uh, I don't see myself leaving Memphis. I think um, I've had numerous opportunities over the years to either I had an offer to go to L.A. to work with a, a rather well-known producer years and years and years ago, and I could always move to Nashville. I don't. I love Nashville. Na Nashville is amazing in the sense that. You go to this one part of town, and the whole town, every building is a studio. There's yeah. 150 studios all around. They're all busy. There's all these great songwriters. All these people have moved there now, so you can go write with four or five different amazing artists, or you go see these people all. Um, what used to be great about studios where there'd be three rooms and everyone would meet in the in the kitchen, and yeah. then you could get blah 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 to come play on your record, or you get you know, yeah, yeah. Dylan would be there and he would get Eric Clapton to come play on something because they were in the same building, and that's what kind of Nashville is right now. There's all these people in the same area, uh, and they can all just feed off each other and rob each that's other, cool. and it pushes each other to be better. Um, but that Nashville also has some downsides too. I I love Memphis for how slow it. I love how slow this town is. I love the history, like we've been talking about, and all the old, the old session guys that are mm -hmm. here in the old studios. You know, like we're in Sam Phillips. There's also Sun. There's Royal. There's Ardent. That all these places changed the world, and they haven't changed since then. So if you yeah. really want to get a, you want to do the R&B thing, you know, you got to go to Royal for that certain sound, or you can get the more, you know, if you want that, always like a big star thing, you go to Ardent. And, yeah. Um, it's just. Uh, Memphis has always been my home, and I, I don't ever see myself leaving. I, I have a wonderful manager now, and she's in Nashville, and so I feel like 
it's it's more reason that I can stay because she's up there and she can she can help promote um, me for gigs and stuff where I don't have to be up there. But I I do travel to Nashville quite a bit to do albums, and I think um, I'll I go down to Fame. I go to Muscle Shoals a lot. I think you got to um, travel a lot. Like as a musician, same same thing. I I I'll do a gig anywhere to do the gig in it. It really helps, man. I, the, when I did the first Jason record, I'd only made records in Memphis before. I went to Nashville, and they do things completely differently. And I kind of like, you know, uh, was worried that I was just going to suck. It was just a whole different way of doing it. Yeah. I wasn't used to having an assistant. I wasn't used to the hours thing they were doing. And uh, now I've done all these major label records up in Nashville that I, I wouldn't be able to do in Memphis. And I've I know how to, I can do records that way and I can do records the Memphis way and now I kind of do an amalgamation of everything depending on what. But it okay. really helps to get that experience of, you know, doing a a band at Sun is is one way that people, a lot of people in Nashville don't know how to record. And then doing a, you know, a, a Chris Christopherson record in Nashville or John Prine record or whoever record in Nashville is different than how we do things down here. And the session men are different up there. They're used to three hour blocks and there's, you know, there's uh, uh, unions and stuff up there. It's, a, it's just a whole different yeah. world, and it's good to know both worlds. I think to to do to do to make records. Makes sense. So. We're, we're proud of you. Well, Ma thank you so much. For thank you, Mark. Done, and, you know, and, and I sure hope you stick around. I do, man. I want to make. We got to make a note. I got to work on a, one of your records, and that was a that's right. One of my favorite things. That's right, man. And we did that at Sun. Yeah, at Sun right. with Jeff Powell and Yep. Good group. Awesome, awesome, man. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Diddy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.